0: As we continue our series now on the theme of knowing scripture, we want to concentrate in this session together on the foundational principles and concepts of the science of biblical interpretation. But before we do that, let's open with prayer. Again, our Father and our God, we look to you as the author of all truth for the aid and assistance of your Holy Spirit, whom thou hast promised to give us, to help us and assist us as we seek a better understanding of your word. Be with us then in the presence of the Spirit, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a sense in which interpreting the Bible is an art, maybe even it would be better to call it a science, but for a moment, at least, let's stick with the uh, analogy of of art. I think of the category of art because of the problems that that we've all been able to recognize in 20th century culture of a new wave of art that has swept across the landscape of of our culture and in many cases bringing a sense of confusion and chaos we've had op art and pop art and abstract impressionism and so on and in these different schools of art and of artistic expression that have emerged we've seen confusion in the realm of interpreting art. Some art is so abstract and at times apparently chaotic that when we look at the painting, we're not sure whether we should turn sideways or, or whether it's been uh, framed and hung upside down because we can't see the structure and the lines and the rhythmic patterns in it as we're accustomed to in more classical forms of art. And some of the of of the more experimental and innovative art forms have been highly subjectivistic in their interpretation and one of the questions that the art critic is interested in and the layman as well when he visits an art gallery or sees a painting in time magazine is what is the meaning of this painting or what is the sculptor trying to say with his latest masterpiece. And we went through a period of art in the last uh, 25 years where there was kind of a freewheeling artistic expression where the artist was asked, what did you mean by your painting? And his response was, I meant whatever you find in it. That is a new rule of interpreting art emerged in in some circles of art that said that the artist now has the license to to make this statement, I paint it, you interpret it. That is a conscious step to embrace a form of subjectivism that says there is no inherent meaning in the art. There is no objective significance to what the artist has painted or has sculpted. But rather, whatever you find in it or however you respond to it is its ultimate meaning. Now, that has provoked a kind of crisis in the field of biblical understanding, because in that approach to art, if we would transfer it to the Bible, would leave us, with no guidelines of objectivity, no rules by which we can discover an objective meaning. Now, remember the framework that I'm working on here is the assertion that I've made that there is, in fact, only one ultimately correct meaning to Scripture, an objective meaning. And it's the meaning that the author of Scripture had in mind. And we can look at that at two levels and two dimensions. We could try to understand the meaning that Luke had in his mind as he wrote his gospel, his intention. What was he trying to express? What was he trying to say? What was he trying to communicate as one level of our search for understanding the Bible? But in an ultimate sense, I'm coming from that school of thought that believes that the Bible comes ultimately from God. And through the agency of the Holy Spirit, God is the ultimate author. And so what we're looking for in interpreting the Bible is what does God have in mind here? What was God communicating to his people when through the agency of the prophets or the apostles, certain books of scripture were set forth? Now, if we take that view of the Bible, that there is an objective meaning then we need to look at the Bible and the whole business of interpreting the Bible, not only as an art, but as a science. And in fact, there is a science, an academic discipline, a particular subdivision of theology that is exclusively concerned for looking at the scientific rules and methods and principles that ought to govern our attempts to interpret the scripture every science has certain rules and methods that are followed within it and sometimes there are differences and controversies that arise within a science as to what are the proper rules and what are the proper methods of approaching a certain science in the field of psychology for example there are are uh, all different forms of competing approaches of methods to finding the best way to do psychology. And that's found even in medical science and in astronomy and virtually every science there is, has its competing schools of thought on what is the best method to approach the field, what are the most important rules to be followed. Now, there is a sense in which the science of biblical interpretation has provoked a major, very major and serious crisis for the church. Now, when theologians discuss this crisis, they talk about it in terms of a technical word for it, which is the word hermeneutics. Some of you perhaps have never even heard the word, other ones you uh, let it fall off your lips uh, very casually in normal conversation, the hermeneutical problem here and so on. And you may be very knowledgeable of the disputes that are involved in that field. But hermeneutics, and let me just take a minute to spell it for you, H-E-R-N-E-N-E-U, hermeneutics, T-I-C-S, hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is simply a fancy word to describe the science of biblical interpretation. And it takes its its meaning and its uh, definition from uh, original uh, Greek word that is involved with communication. And of of communicating information by messages, for example, if, if you remember your uh, Greek mythology. And your Roman mythology. I believe in Roman mythology, Mercury, the one with the winged feet, uh, had the special responsibility in the pantheon of deities to be the messenger of God, of the gods. And that's why he has wings on his feet so that he can fly from Olympus to earth or back again and speedily bring uh, the messages that need to be brought back and forth. He is the supreme communicator. He's the FTD of the ancient world. But In the Greek pantheon, the corresponding God to Mercury was the God Hermes. He was the messenger of the God, and it's the same basic concept. We are trying to understand in the science of hermeneutics, the message of scripture. What is it communicating? What is it conveying? What is it saying? And hence we have this special discipline or science that we call hermeneutics. Well, I said a moment ago that right now in this decade, the church is facing one of its most severe theological crises in the whole history of Christendom. And it focuses on this very question of hermeneutics, of how do we interpret the Bible? We could go back into history for the basic roots of the problem. And there have been different watersheds in church history where hermeneutics has raised its head as a serious question. But let me just uh, isolate for a a second one crisis point that I think most of us will be able to uh, sense a degree of familiarity with. We go back to the 19th century to that period where we saw the emergence of what was called liberal theology. Now, as soon as I say that I. I'm, I'm frightened that we're going to have a, tr- a problem here of communication because the word liberal generally means free thinking, open minded, progressive and so on. And I'm not using the term liberal now in its wide and broad and general sense. I'm referring now to a very specific school of thought with very specific ideas and doctrines that emerged in the 19th century and so-called 19th century liberalism had its own kind of crisis. It came to the conclusion that the supernatural elements of the biblical content were no longer believable in a modern industrialized scientific world. And that if we were to extract anything from the Bible of lasting value, of contemporary value, we had to de-supernaturalize the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so there was, in effect, a crisis of belief. And many scholars came to the conclusion that you simply could no longer believe in angels and demons and miracles in the New Testament and virgin births and resurrections and ascensions and all of that sort of thing. Now, you might say, well, at that point, we're talking not about some of the tangential elements or the minor details of the Christian faith, but when you're talking about resurrection, you're talking about atonement, you're talking about the very substance of the Christian gospel. And if you don't believe that, you're no longer Christian. And there were many who took that position in the controversy, focusing on 19th century liberal theology. The crisis came about here. People who came to this point said, what do we do? We have several options. We can just turn in our church cards and say, okay, frankly, candidly, we just don't believe in Christianity anymore, and let's close up shop and go home. But these were people who controlled major theological seminaries, colleges, universities, and they had at their disposal vast memberships in large church groups. In fact, in some cases, entire denominations. And they say, wait a minute, the church is an institution that still has a very significant impact on the culture. And we have this following. Why should we just close the doors of the church and turn them into museums? Why should we just jettison Christianity? Because we believe, as the liberals did, that there is still value from the New Testament teaching of Jesus that is relevant for modern man. They looked at the Sermon on the Mount. They looked at the ethic of Jesus. They looked at his humanitarian program they look at his social concerns his concerns for mercy his concerns for justice and they say why shouldn't the church continue to exist and christianity continue to exist as a viable cultural force working for the betterment of the welfare of the human race but in order to do that we have to revise its original meaning and extrapolate from the new testament just that relevant material and free it from all that primitive business of miracles and the supernatural and so that theology had to create a whole new approach to interpreting the bible an approach that called for a reinterpretation a revision if you will of the original message of jesus to make it relevant to modern men, I mean, this is still very much alive today. I remember when I went to seminary, uh, the, the, the professors that I had came out of the liberal tradition and they would, would speak with great urgency about the passionate concerns that they had for social welfare, which are very important indeed. And they would say, gentlemen, we've got to make the gospel relevant to modern man. And somehow that didn't sit right with me. You know, that always kind of agitated me uh, viscerally inside. It would turn my stomach upside down. I would want to to tip up and scream at times and say, wait a minute. We don't have to make the gospel relevant. There's nothing more relevant than the gospel. We have to show the relevancy. We have to manifest the relevancy. We have to explain the relevancy, but we don't have to make the relevancy uh, happen. The gospel is relevant. And I'm one for one and persuaded that it is relevant in its original proclamation without being revised or reinterpreted. But that whole theology brought with it a whole new approach to biblical interpretation that we need to be aware of. Now, in this present-day crisis of hermeneutics, we've gone way beyond the problems that 19th-century liberalism engendered. And again, there are many, many, many competing schools of hermeneutics vying for acceptance within the church today. And I don't have time in this brief introduction and overview uh, to set forth in detail the various nuances of these many different schools of thought, but I'll just mention three in passing so that we can get at least a taste and a flavor of some of the agitation that's going on out there in the churches, in the colleges, in the seminaries, so that we can understand what's up with respect biblical interpretation. The first method, which I will call the classical orthodox Protestant method of biblical interpretation, that which was formulated by the 16th century reformers and and maintained itself down throughout the ages and is still maintained in conservative schools of thought, is known as the grammatico historical school now there's another technical term and and we'll put it on the character generator so that you can take notes on it and spell it again and see if i can spell it off the top of my head g-r-a-m-m-a-t-i-c-o dash uh, historical grammatico historical school that school of inter- of hermeneutics takes its name from the idea that the proper approach to biblical interpretation is to try to study the historical situation in which the Bible was written, the use of grammar, syntax, language, and all the rest that was that was uh, being used at the time the documents were written and by studying carefully word meanings of the first century and before coming to an understanding of the original meaning of the texts. What did Luke mean when he wrote? The gospel of luke to first century people how could we reasonably expect his writings to be understood at that time in history what was their grammatical and historical understanding of the text and the grammatical historical view says that's the way we approach the bible and that's the way we are to understand the bible now how it was written in we still have the problem of applying it to the 20th century but we recognize That the documents themselves are tied, are chained, are tethered, if you will, to the historical context in which they were originally written. And that's the context in which we should seek to reconstruct if we want to have an accurate understanding of them. At the same time, we recognize that as interpreters, when we come to the Bible. We also have a historical situation, and our historical situation is the 20th century. I live in an age of atomic bombs and automobiles and television and all of that, and there's a sense in which my whole way of thinking, my whole way of understanding, is very much conditioned by my cultural setting, by, and we're going to look at that in more detail and with some other problems that it raises later on, but just now for the, for the moment. We understand that we as interpreters live in the 20th century, and there's a sense in which we're tethered to our own day. So there is a gap between the 20th century and the first century and earlier. And the science of hermeneutics in the grammatical historical method seeks to bridge that gap by having us go back and try to reconstruct the first century Other approaches say we don't have to do that. What we'll do is we'll take our 20th century concepts and our 20th century standpoint and go back and rewrite the scriptures according to 20th century things. That's a different school of thought, which we'll get at a little later. But the classical method is to seek the objective meaning of the past. That's number one. Then, after we understand what it meant, then then we face the question of applying it to our present day situation. But as much as possible, we try not to let our present day situation color or distort the original meaning of the text. Now the second method, which was developed in the 19th century is called the religious historical method. The religious historical method. Now that represented a an approach to scripture that grew out of a whole sweeping movement of philosophy and changing of thinking and method that was characteristic of the 19th century. If there was a buzzword in 19th century intellectual uh, thought, it was the word evolution. Everybody's aware of the impact of evolution in biology, but it wasn't just Darwin in biology. The concept of evolution was made felt in other areas, in philosophy, in emerging philosophies of history, like Karl Marx, for example, like uh, Hegel, for example, also in forms of political theory, like Spencer's social Darwinianism, ideas that the whole process of, of history, art, economics, literature, everything, is involved in a process of emerging. And the basic governing idea is that history and art and everything else Moved biology from the simple to the complex. And the governing assumption was that religion does the same thing. were written by a single author. I predict right now that it will take 40 years before the scientific proof of that will be accepted in the theological world, because it smashes an idol of the religious historical school of multiple authorship of the penitent. But We're not here to debate that point, but simply to illustrate to you that there are different schools of thought, the third one and the one that is most uh, influential in our day, I'm going to call broadly the existential school of thought. The existential school of thought, which has given us the so-called new hermeneutic, says that that we're not really interested in the original historical situation because it doesn't relate to us today. What we need is a theology that is timeless, that is not bound to the first century or even bound to the 20th century, but transcends that all. That redemption is something that doesn't happen along historical lines, but it happens vertically, directly from above. Where I come to the Bible and the way I interpret it is existentially, in my own existential situation, God can speak to me out of the blue, directly from above, up out of the blue. And and somehow the Bible in an instant becomes the word of God to me as God speaks to me through it. But the Bible simply becomes a vehicle for this existential experience that takes takes place. And so in this sense, we are approaching very rapidly the idea of the Bible being what modern art is. Luke wrote it, but we interpret it, freewheeling, according to our own existential situation. But, dear friends, I am convinced that does radical violence to the text of Scripture. And not only violence to the text of Scripture, but it does violence to the church. And it does violence ultimately to the truth of Christ. And so I, for one, contend against it with all of the strength that I can bring about in this debate. Let me just take an extra minute, if I can, to illustrate the thing. We've seen the same problem of the intrusion of relativism in interpretation, not simply in the religious realm, but in our own national heritage. The Supreme Court of the United States is by historical appointment, primarily a hermeneutical agency. What does that mean? That means that the function of the Supreme Court is to interpret the constitution of the United States of America and measure it against existing bits of legislation. If Congress passes a law and you don't think it's constitutional, you can appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court for a ruling. And what the court was originally designed to do was to look at the the current law, look at the Constitution, and see if the two are in harmony. And if they're not, the law is thrown out as unconstitutional. But that requires interpretation and interpreting the Constitution. And the traditional method in the courts was to interpret the Constitution according to the grammatical historical method. Until recent, where a whole new approach has now been embraced that says we can reinterpret the Constitution, not does this law really fit with what the fathers thought about in the 18th century, but does this law really meet contemporary community standards? Watch for it. Watch for it in the news, watch for it in the legislative edition. The governing principle of constitutionality has become consistency with contemporary community schemes, which change and change and change. Because we bought into a view of relativism there are no absolutes, there are no abiding principles. And if that's the case, then the Constitution itself can no longer function as an objective, foundational guide for future behavior. And so you can actually change the Constitution, not by a constitutional amendment, but by simply reinterpreting it. That's the kind of crisis we have in the Christian faith, in the Christian church, and that's why. The science of hermeneutics is vital because if the new hermeneutics prevail, then we will have a Jesus who is not the same yesterday, today and forever, but a Jesus who goes through as many changes as the theologians who are interpreting. We're going to be searching for an objective method, and we're going to be examining ways to establish it throughout the rest of this. course. In this session of our course on understanding scripture, we're going to consider the meaning and the function of the literal interpretation of the Bible. But before we do that, let's pray. Again, our father, we come to you seeking to know you more intimately and more accurately, not to the end that we simply may be puffed up by an increase in knowledge. But that in increasing our knowledge of you, we may increase our love for you and our obedience toward you. Be with us now as we continue to study this question of biblical interpretation. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I mentioned a couple of lectures ago that sometimes people will say to me, as I think they do to you from time to time, that that's your interpretation, isn't it? And we explored the implications of that uh, question. Well, another one that I hear very often, and I suspect you do too, is that uh, when I will be citing something from the Bible or or giving a a, a theological point and referring to to the Scriptures for support, People will look at me and say, "R.C., you don't interpret the Bible literally, do you?" And they look at it with uh, look at me with kind of a, an expression of consternation and bewildered disbelief. And and, and notice even how the question is phrased. It, it's not simply a direct question. It's not simply, "Do you interpret the Bible literally?" But it's it's phrased more negatively than that. It's, "You don't interpret the Bible literally, do you?" Well, whenever anybody puts that to me, I have just enough mischievousness, I think, in my personality and makeup to uh, sometimes use shock tactics to get somebody's attention. Because whenever anybody ever says to me, you don't interpret the Bible literally, do you? My standard reply to that question is, well, of course. Like, who doesn't? Who in their right mind doesn't interpret the Bible literally? Now, I know very well that the idea of literal interpretation is an idea that's associated once again with uneducated people people who are backwards in their mentality who concrete and specific in mind. I'm talking about a method of biblical interpretation. Again, a method that was very important to the rediscovery of the Bible during the Protestant Reformation. And a method that was closely linked to what I outlined in our last session uh, as the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Luther, of course, did not invent the idea of literal interpretation, but he did use the technical language of what he called seeking the sensus literalis of Scripture. The sensus literalis. It's a Latin phrase, S-E-N-S-U-S, and literalis, L-I-T-E-R-A-L-I-S. And all it means, being translated, is the literal sense or the literal meaning of Scripture. And so in the way in which Luther was talking is the way in which I am talking when I say the first real primary rule of biblical interpretation of sound biblical interpretation is to interpret the Bible literally. But what did Luther mean by it? In a simpler way, he said, what we should be seeking for as we come to the Scripture. Is the plain sense of the meaning of the text. And to elucidate further, what is meant by interpreting the Bible literally in that classical sense is simply that we are to interpret the Bible according to its litera, which is according to its literature, according to the way it is written. Now, if that's all we mean by literal interpretation, then we should interpret the newspaper literally, we should interpret poetry literally, we should interpret uh, music literally. Anything that's written as literature should be interpreted as literature, meaning that we follow the normal pattern and the normal rules of literary interpretation. Well, sometimes that throws Conservative people for a loop. Evangelical Christians sometimes get very agitated with me when I say that a practical rule for literal interpretation is that we should interpret the Bible like we would interpret any other book, that we should read the Bible in a certain sense like we read at any other book. And this people here with horror. They say, what do you mean? The Bible's not like any other book. The Bible's the book of books. It's the norm of norms and without norm. The Bible's the word of God and alone the word of God. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And I hear all of that. I believe all of that. But when I come to read it and to interpret it, the rules for interpreting it are no different from the rules of interpreting any other book in this regard that the Bible is written with sentences and the senses have individual words and all of the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit on the text of scripture does not make it a magical book. In the Bible, a noun is a noun and a verb is a verb. And if you want to understand how these things fit together, you have to understand the rules of grammar. If you want to learn to take the trouble to learn the ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek, even though I believe that God the Holy Spirit inspired the Greek uh, writings of the original New Testament documents, there's no such thing as what we call Holy Ghost Greek. The Holy Ghost and inspiration doesn't change. Nouns to verbs and verbs to nouns. And so I am still, as a human interpreter, called to recognize the difference between adjectives and adverbs, questions and, and answers, uh, indicatives and imperatives, and all of that. And so all Luther was getting at when he said, come to the Bible and look for its literal sense, Is look for its plain meaning. Now, he did that for a reason, because there grew up in the Middle Ages a very strange approach to scripture, a kind of mystical approach to scripture. We're saying, if you really want to know what the Bible says, you can't just look at the plain meaning, but there is a hidden, esoteric, mysterious, mystical, spiritual meaning hidden behind every text so that if, if for example, the Bible says, and Paul went down to Jerusalem, or Paul went up to Jerusalem, but that's hidden behind that text with some mysterious allusion to people going up to heaven, and we just had to be able to crack the mystical code and underline and get beneath the layers of, of the text to discover that hidden, secret, mysterious, mystical meaning. That kind of stuff really turned the Bible into a wax nose because everybody was free to discover all kinds of mysterious insights in the Bible that the text of the scripture never said at all. And Luther said, let's return to soberness. Let's go to the text and read this text for what it says. There's to be no spiritualistic interpretation of the Scripture." That is, literal interpretation is opposed to spiritualistic interpretation. Does that mean that we're, we're supposed to be unspiritual when we come to the Bible? We're not supposed to pray? or that? Oh, no, no, no. You know the difference between being spiritual and being a spiritualist? A spiritualist is somebody that goes into the dark room and, 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 and taps on tables and tries to communicate with departed spirits. They're not being really spiritual in the biblical sense. They're being contrary to the Holy Spirit, but they're called spiritualists. And spiritualistic interpretation is that kind of interpretation which turns the Bible into a book of magic. Now, there are different forms of it. And in our own day, I've seen on on countless occasions, earnest Christian people, evangelical people, caught up in one form of spiritualistic interpretation that I call lucky dipping. You have a problem, a personal problem. And you pray about that problem. It's a spiritual problem, perhaps. And you want the mind of God. You want guidance from God. And so the the, the game of, of lucky dipping is played this way. You, you make your prayer to God. You say, God, I don't know whether I should go and take this job in Alabama or stay in Boston. Now I have to make a decision, and I want to please you, God. Now I'm going to ask you to guide me, and to lead me, and I'm going to ask you please to do it through your sacred scripture. And so what I do is after I make my prayer, I piously take my Bible, and I shut my eyes, and I just take the covers and turn them upright and let the Bible dangle open, then flip the book over, and then without looking, I take and put my finger down on the text, and then I love Open up my eyes, and wherever my finger falls, I get my message from God. And lo and behold, I might read there as I look at the text, and David went down to the Negev. And I say, ha-ha, the Negev is the south of Palestine. David went down to the Negev. That's my answer. God is telling me of the two options I'm supposed to take the southern one, and so that means I should take the job in Alabama rather than the talk, the job in Boston. I'm not kidding. This goes on daily in the Christian world in the name of spirituality, in the name of obedience. And there's no difference between that and using a Ouija board. We take the Bible and turn it into a superstitious tool of magic. We violate the meaning of that text. God, the Holy Spirit, did not inspire the text that tells us that David went to the Negev to teach me that I'm supposed to go to Alabama. I remember uh, a very earnest young Christian girl that I had in a college class who who really wanted to please God with her life, but she was very much concerned that she came to her senior year. She was suffering from senior panic. She didn't have a boyfriend, no prospects for marriage, and she did not want to spend the rest of her life sing- single. And she asked me to enter into a covenant of prayer for her that she'd be able to find a boyfriend. And I did, and, and we talked about it, and I counseled her. And she was very, very upset inwardly about whether or not she was going to be a spinster or whether or not she was going to be married. So she prayed earnestly that God would, would give her a man. And one day she came in and she was thrilled to death. And I said, what's the matter? She said, Oh, she said, guess what? She said, I'm getting married. I said, you are? To whom? And she said, I don't know. I said, wait a minute. You're going to marry a stranger? (laughs) Did you get a lottery ticket or something? What happened? She said, no, I don't know who I'm going to marry, but I know I'm going to get married. I said, well, how do you know that? She said, well, the Lord told me. And I said, He said, well, I asked the Lord to tell me whether or not I was going to get married. She said, and so I prayed that God would, would reveal it to me. And then I closed my eyes and I lucky dip, And the words came on the text, "Weep not daughter of Zion, for behold, your prince cometh riding upon the foal of a donkey. And she said, don't you see? God told me in that text that I'm going to get married. I will, you know, if Cinderella or, 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 or whatever Prince Charming was ever in real life, here it was. I mean, God had just virtually promised this woman that she was not only going to have her prince. But he wasn't going to ride a horse, but the next best thing, he was going to come into town on a donkey. And I and I tried. I didn't want to crush her exuberance, but I had to explain to her that it wasn't quite the way we were supposed to interpret the scriptures. I have to say that about three weeks later, she met a fellow that she hadn't met before, and they had a whirlwind courtship and got married. And she's convinced to this day that that was the answer to her prayer. And, and some people might say, "Well, wait a minute, aren't there numerous innumerable, innumerable incidents in history where God has, in fact, used a verse of scripture in a very, very strange way to turn the lives of people upside down? Yes. Think of Augustine. You remember the story of St. Augustine, who was living a life of riotousness, licentiousness, immorality. His mother was a devout Christian. Monica was praying in tears every day for the conversion of his son. And as the story goes, Augustine was walking through a garden on occasion and children were gathered there in a grove and they were playing a game that had a little refrain to it in Latin, tola lega, tola lega. And he heard these words in their literal meaning was take up and read, take up and read. And so, He was fascinated by that, and there happened to be a copy of the New Testament there, and he just picked it up, and and he opened up the text, and his eyes fell on the text of Scripture, not on riotousness and drunkenness, not on immorality or licentiousness, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lusts of the flesh and so on. And Augustine says that that text gripped his heart and brought to him a dramatic transformation to the Christian faith. Yes, you say, spontaneous reading of scripture, one verse, his eyes fall on one verse, but I'll tell you what, when that happened, in that holy moment, in that special occasion, when Augustine picked up the text, what converted Augustine was a correct understanding and application of the biblical text. I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit used that special occasion to bring Augustine to the faith. But he used the plain sense of the meaning of scripture to do it because the text that he saw and that he read and the spirit used to convict him spoke precisely to the sin in his life, which is exactly the intention of that text. It didn't require some kind of mystical, magical, superstitious, twisting and distortion of the text in order to do it. Jonathan Edwards had the same thing when he was struggling over predestination and. And his eyes fell upon the text, now unto the immortal, invisible, only wise God. His soul was flooded by the impact of that one verse, but the soul was flooded as a result of the right interpretation of the passage. And so, what we're looking for is sober interpretation so that we can grasp the real meaning of the text, which will mean the same thing for you as it does for me, its application may be different in your life than it is to mine. But I don't want to labor the point. At the heart of literal interpretation involves a certain little bit of homework that we have to do. Literal interpretation is usually understood as a very simplistic thing, but in its actual practice, in the traditional sense here, It requires really a high degree of sophistication, in some cases, a very technical knowledge. Because before I can interpret the Bible literally and accurately, I must be able to recognize the literary forms in which Scripture comes to us. And part of this course, as I said sooner or later, and you're thinking it's going to be later, but it will get to it, uh, I'm going to give you practical rules that will help you improve your ability to interpret the scriptures so that you'll be able to recognize certain problems and certain uh, types of, of writing that are there in the scripture and how we handle them and what the pitfalls are that we have to watch out for. But for example, to interpret the Bible literally requires that we be able to distinguish between poetry and historical narrative between didactic literature, between wisdom literature, and apodictic literature. They're all different kinds of literary form, And there are rules for interpreting poetry that are different from rules that we use to interpret narrative history. Or teaching portions of the epistles, for example, are different from songs that we find in the Old Testament. And we have to be able to learn to distinguish the difference. Uh, And it's not always easy. On some occasions, you pick up a piece of literature and it's very clear that it's poetry. It rhymes, it has rhythm, it has a certain structure to it that poetry has, and, and we recognize it as lyrical poetry and treat it accordingly. On the other hand, there are times when the literary forms are clearly historical narrative, but there are times when it's not always so clear. Take the book of Jonah. Let's look at Jonah, for example. Is Jonah history? Or is it some other kind of, of special symbolism? Is it is it an epic poem? Is, is, is it a fable designed to teach a moral lesson? Or is it a real historical event? Which is it? There's been all kinds of debates about that. I remember when I was a seminary student, I was at a seminary that was predominantly liberal at that time. And, and the old testament professor a very uh, warm and sanguine individual very kind to his students but he had had his phd he had studied in a liberal college he had studied in a liberal seminary got his doctorate in a liberal uh, institution and he was a liberal professor and one of the assignments that i had in, a, in an advanced course in, uh, in uh, hebrew exegesis was to write a paper a term paper on the question of the literary form of the book of Jonah and I remember I undertook that uh, uh, question and I produced a paper for this professor in which I argued that the book of Jonah was written as historical narrative and the professor was beside himself not in anger he wasn't hostile he was delighted he actually implored me to have this essay published in a religious journal, and I couldn't understand why. And he said, well, it's so innovative. It's so novel. He had never heard anybody argue that Jonah was actually written as historical narrative. And he thought that my arguments were pretty good. He thought that it was a liberal interpretation. I said, if I did that, I'd be sued for plagiarism, because all I'm giving you is the classic traditional orthodox conservative approach, to the book of Jonah that he had never encountered in his lifetime. But the point is, even as I was doing that study, you see a book like Jonah, portions of it are written in a style that is very much like narrative history, but right smack dab in the middle of it, there's a lengthy poem that's clearly poetic. It has the stanza, the structure, the syntax, the versification of poetry. It's right there as poetry. And how does it fit together with the the narrative? It's not always an easy question. And here's something we need to be very careful about. There are conservative people who believe that Jonah was not a historical person. Not because they don't believe in miracles, but because they're persuaded that the literary structure, the literary form of Jonah is not a historical form, and so that it ought not to be interpreted as history. On the other hand, you have people who, who are liberal who say, "Oh, it's a historical literary form," but we know it's not history because it's supernatural, and we know that miracles don't happen. So their philosophical prejudice against against uh, miracle prejudges the interpretation of the text, and we have to be very careful of that because. The Bible can be distorted both to the left and to the right, both by liberals and to conservatives. Conservatives who want to impose a crass form of literalism in the popular sense when it ought not to be imposed. And on the other hand, liberals, who because they don't like what the Bible says, try to recast it into the shape of symbols or poetry when it doesn't have a poetic structure to it at all. What we don't want to do is to violate the way the book is written. I was in high school. I went to a course at a local church, and the the minister was explaining to us the miracles of Jesus from a liberal perspective. And he talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And he said, well, we know that Jesus couldn't have, you know, miraculously uh, fed 5,000 people from a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread. So we, we can't interpret it that way. And he said, what really happened there was obviously that uh, some people brought their lunch, but most of them were not uh, diligent enough to prepare for it. And so Jesus was able to persuade those who had brought something to share with those who had not. And so the real miracle is an ethical one. And we saw and thought, oh, isn't that marvelous? What a wonderful way to reinterpret the scripture. But that man violated. The text, because the text doesn't purport to teach that Jesus persuaded people. So what the text is saying is that Jesus, through supernatural power, astonished everybody to they you no, know, you may not believe that. But say that. Say, I don't believe it. But you understand what it's saying. You see, the question of belief or unbelief is a question that comes after interpretation. First, we have to understand what it says. And then we have to say, do we believe it or don't we believe it? But we can't because we don't believe it. We interpret it. Or we've seen errors in the other direction, enforced literalism or enforced historic or historicity when the Bible doesn't warrant it. I've read more than one attempt by conservatives and evangelicals who are trying to show how marvelously and wonderful the biblical prophecies are. That not only do you look at the prophecies of the future in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and Joel and Nahum and that, but they will go back to... Uh, uh, poems in the book of job or in the Psalms, or in the proverbs and and you'll see a poem there where where somebody's worshiping the greatness and the grandeur of god and it says the word of god goes through the air to the four points of the earth and somebody reads that and they say you mean job said that the word of god is sent through the air how is the word of god sent through the air this is a prophecy for the invention of radio because today the word of god is sent through the ear on radio beams or on television beams. That's not what that text was talking about. That text is talking about a poetic expression of the power of the word of God to compass the globe. It has nothing to do with television and radio. But in their zeal to prove that the Bible has predictive prophecy, which I think it does, they read into the passages prophetic content that was never meant to be. And so the idea of distorting the Bible by mistreating its literary form is a pitfall that is shared both by the liberal and by the conservative. And if we're really going to interpret the Bible literally, we will be careful not to ignore the literary forms in which the Bible is written.